0: I could wear Kathy Griffin's wig into Mar-a-Lago, into the Herschel fundraiser. How amazing would that be?
1: The baffling rise and spectacular fall of one of the right wing's biggest stars. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. When the news broke that James O'Keefe had been forced out of Project Veritas, the group he founded in his father's garage in 2010 that conducted stunts, undercover stings, and other deceptive tactics to inflict embarrassment on Democrats and media targets, there was one person I wanted to talk to more than anyone else. She's Lauren Windsor, the executive director of American Family Voices and the executive producer of the grassroots political web show, The Undercurrent. She's a contributor to HuffPost, The Nation, LA Progressive, prolific author. And a much quoted voice in media. Lauren, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Matt. So just give us a little background here. What is Democracy Partners?
0: Democracy Partners is a. Uh... Progressive political consulting firm, nationally constituted of independent consultants, smaller firms, affiliated under one banner. We, I'm located in the primary office in D.C. with Bob Creamer, one of the co-founders, along with Mike, my partner in Mike Lux Media, and also one of the co-founders of Democracy Partners.
1: Got it. So you consult for democratic organizations, campaigns?
0: Yes. Progressive organizations. It's Across the spectrum of democratic and progressive political work, we really concentrate on issue advocacy.
1: Do you remember when you first heard about James O'Keefe and Project Veritas?
0: would have been sometime after what happened with Acorn. At the time I was living in Los Angeles, I was an activist with, it wasn't until a few years later, an activist with Occupy LA, but I was aware of the things that were going on with Acorn and some of the stunts he was pulling with Mary Landrieu, for example.
1: And did you think about him much before What happened with Democracy Partners in 2016? Did you come across Project Veritas much?
0: Not directly. I was definitely aware of him because I launched a web show that was doing bird dog on the ground reporting. I still do this. It's the undercurrent. I engaged in some undercover reporting to a much lesser degree. I was definitely aware of Project Veritas and what they were doing. I never considered myself to be competitive to them. I don't think that James O'Keefe invented undercover reporting. I know he likes to think that he has, but he did not, in fact, invent undercover reporting.
1: So help us set the scene a little bit. Let's fast forward to 2016. When did you and the other folks at Democracy Partners first become aware that something funny had been happening inside your own office.
0: I had a gut feeling prior to our finding out for sure that something just wasn't right. It didn't feel right. And you should listen to your intuition, folks, because I said something to Bob twice when he was wanting to bring this this intern in. And both Mike and I, when he came in to tell us, we're like, well, that's odd to bring in somebody to the office a couple months before the election and then none of us know and he was very, oh, don't worry about it. It's a niece of a friend of mine. I had her and talked to her, and she was a blank slate, like suspiciously a blank slate. And I went to go, I did an online search of her and couldn't find anything. And so then I approached Bob in the hallway after that and said, Hey, you really need to get an NDA and an ID on this girl. I We don't know who this is. And I just don't have a good feeling about it. I couldn't find her online. So we definitely, were suspicious and i had some red flags i think that occurred during her time there that i remember certain conversations just being like hold on whoa like why do i feel like she might be wearing a camera or something and i would just tell you always listen to your intuition because if if i push back harder and just been like i'm doing this no matter what we could save ourselves years of litigation.
1: It is interesting, this exact kind of thing, not on nearly a spectacular scale, happened to me when I was managing a campaign in 2012. We had someone come in wanting an internship and uh, we got pretty far down the road of the process before a little bit of Google searching unearthed that he actually worked for Republicans and was trying to infiltrate the campaign. It's it, it, But it's an odd feeling. It's hard to follow up on that feeling and feel confident about it. So let's just now give the folks the thumbnail So what did happen with this person? You mentioned the word infiltration.
0: There were, I think, eight at least different operatives working on this from across the country over the more than six months. The initial interaction had taken place between a former subcontractor of Bobs, this guy named Scott Fogle, whom we had worked with periodically on different different projects as a subcontractor when he was in DC. He moves from DC to Wisconsin he's an independent consultant there and ends up having a bar conversation with Christian Hartsock, who is a longtime senior he likes to call himself an investigative journalist i like to call him a espionage agent because essentially that's what they are is spies because they're embedding in people's embedding within organizations that's the crux actually of our our case is that you take on a fiduciary responsibility once you go to actually become an agent, whether or not it's as an intern or staffer. Anyway, Hartsock talks Fovel up at a bar, says he's working for a progressive donor who wants to fund a voter registration drive. And he's feeding this idea to, to Scott. And so Scott makes a connection between Bob and Christian, and then it becomes like over the course of several months, Project Veritas ends up donating like 20 grand, I think, 20, 25 grand to one of the organizations Bob was consulting for that was doing voter registration. And they he- wired
1: $20,000 from a bank in Belize to one of Bob's yeah. groups.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: not at all suspicious.
0: When you're willing to write checks like that, the it's not like the organizations of the progressive movement are just rolling in cash. Anybody okay. who's worked for progressive nonprofits can tell you it's like a never-ending slog to get donor money. You have a donor that comes out and says, hey, I want to fund exactly what you're doing. And here, let me write a check for you for 20 grand. It definitely oils like lubricate situations for you so he used that as on as his entree with bob and then knowing that bob was working with the dnc had been a long time advisor to the dnc and hillary clinton then tries to hey oh by the way i have a niece anyone who could use her as an intern and mm. Bob's, oh we could use a, an extra set of hands around here and that's how she ended up getting her foot in the door but when i teach people infiltration trainings now i'm always emphasizing you can't just vet staffers and interns, you need to vet donors because just because someone wants to write you a check, you should definitely be suspicious if you've never met them before and they just happen to want to write Here, take it for exactly the work you're already doing. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is
1: that's an excellent point because this is literally the plot of the clint eastwood movie in the line of fire where john malkovich wants to assassinate the president and he starts writing giant checks to the california gop and lo and behold he gets incredible insider access so it's that's it's interesting the lengths to which they were clearly willing to go in order to make this infiltration happen eight staffers They place someone inside on the ground with democracy partners, and they're willing to put in $20,000 up front. So all of this went to trial. So
0: we filed suit in 2017. And if I'd had my druthers, we would have filed suit sooner. But there was, I think, back and forth as to whether or not there would be a lawsuit. There was definitely a lack of desire to want to pursue criminal charges because we're in the final month before the, the election. And when any organization who works in politics is hit in that way in a period of time that is just critical to electoral outcomes, you, the sort of initial re- knee jerk response is just go down like like a, a turtle in a shell and just try to ride out the storm right? right we all knew that it was bullshit what they were trying to say about bob there's a reason that sinclair did not run this story veritas had that lined up a distribution deal with sinclair broadcasting bob went in with his lawyers once we figured out that we've been infiltrated and said You really want to be held liable for this? Totally false. Let's see all of the raw tape. And oh, by the way, you're aiding and abetting trespass of private property and yada, yada. Sinclair didn't run any of that. And so anyway. Do we we
1: know what they were hoping to do? How they were hoping to portray the inside footage that they gleaned?
0: This was all a, a hit job on behalf of Donald Trump. They were trying to use Bob to take down Hillary Clinton. They were trying to do whatever they could to say that Hillary Clinton was trying to instigate violence at Trump rally. That DNC contractors and thereby Hillary Clinton staffers were condoning or entertaining voter registration fraud. They're just always trying to use whatever appearance of malfeasance they can gen up to destroy the organization or someone who is related to the organization.
1: The Acorn Playbook.
0: Yeah. And people will say, you do the exact same thing, Lauren. You're a political operative and you run a web show where you're reporting and going undercover. One, I never embed in organizations. I think that is a step too far. It's espionage to like actually go work for an organization of your ideological opponent. Uh, I think it's fair game to go to events or you stake someone out at their house and they're a political, uh, an elected official. I think that's fair game because they're a public figure. A lot of what O'Keefe does is goes after lower mid-level staffers who are less politically savvy. And by virtue of their connection to whoever the principal is, oh, the principal is condoning this unethical behavior. It's usually not illegal, whatever they're saying or trying to entrap people into doing, it's usually unethical.
1: And of course- what we found in the ACORN case was that subsequently these kinds of charges and insinuations disintegrate once they're actually looked at in detail.
0: I think that's definitely why Bob and Democracy Partners won our case is because it just doesn't stand up to further scrutiny. But to go back to differences between what I do and what they do is I'm not getting on dating apps and trying to entrap people in, in what appears to them to be a date. To Wait, is
1: that something they do?
0: Yes, they have used I haven't heard this. Apps. Yeah, oh they've used gosh. dating apps to go after targets.
1: Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Let's talk a little bit about, th- there's, there's a very interesting twist on this O'Keefe Project Veritas story, which you've already alluded to, which is that you yourself do some measure of, of expose reporting, video reporting, turning the tables on people on the right. Where did that, idea originate? Was it after this interaction with Project Veritas? Was it before?
0: I'm often compared with them. You do the exact same thing. I go after high value people who are in the public eye, politicians or very high level advocates who are in a position of being a principal who should be held accountable. I'm going to events. I'm not becoming a fiduciary in any way for Mm -hmm. any of these people. And at the end of the day, I'm not committing some type of like psychological warfare on targets. Like I get the story. I try to put out as much of the interaction as possible without with as few cuts as possible. So you have as right. much context. I try to be as truthful to what happened in my description of the interaction so that Because to me, at the end of the day, my integrity and what I say something is needs to actually be what it is or else journalists aren't going to believe me. It's like the girl who cried wolf. And so I was doing some undercover stuff, using it sparingly in 2014, I would say between 2013 and 2016, really up until 2019. I took a break to go work for a, a political campaign for a presidential campaign in San Francisco in 2019. When I came back, I was so tired of like Facebook stuff and YouTube, just like different platforms. And it was really just, I need to focus in on getting the stuff that I'm doing out to reporters, putting it out on Twitter. And I started putting out more videos on Twitter. And they started getting more notice from journalists in terms of picking them up to do their own stories. And then Once the election happened and it was clear that there was going to be a huge effort to try to overturn the election, and also that Georgia was going to be the crucible, like the entire center of the political universe for the next two months, I was like, okay, I need to go and report and be on the ground because I know that this is going to be like make or break where the election is stolen. And so I went to Georgia and I just knew I. At that point, I was like, no one's going to tell me they're going to overturn the election Mm. just like by sticking a camera in their face. I need to just go undercover and record what I can and get as much evidence as I can. And I ended up breaking the story that there was going to be a Senate challenge to the Electoral College, which. At the time, no one in D.C. took seriously because you had this crazy fringe elements in the House led by Mo Brooks, the Freedom Caucus guy, saying we're going to challenge the Electoral College. Nobody took it seriously. Everyone and everyone thought that Mitch McConnell was going to be the majority leader. Nobody thought that Georgia was going to go blue in the Senate. So I'm on the ground I talked to Tommy, Tommy Tuberville. He was a senator elect. He was out campaigning with Madison Cawthorn and Matt. All of them, they get up and they're t- telling these speeches, saying these speeches of "Don't give up on Donald Trump. We still have a, uh, we still have options." And so I catch Tuberville. I'm like, Madison just said that y'all still have cards on the table. That you still have tricks up your sleeve. What are y'all gonna do? What are you gonna do to fight for President Trump? And he was like, "I'm gonna tell you." you seen what, you seen what's going on over the house. Oh my We're gosh. Beautiful-
1: you can almost hear the little lady appended he, he at was, the end no, of that he, sentence.
0: He was, it was like very little lady. Like at the beginning, oh gosh. I had a, a mask on and this was at a point like no one was wearing masks. It was like the peak of the epidemic and he wouldn't talk to, he was like, you're going to take that mask off. And so I knew at that point, like for the rest of the time that I was in Georgia, I could just never wear a mask. And so that right there is deep in the trenches. But
1: putting your health on the line to do this.
0: Yeah, I did. I I assure you, I did. And I actually, I had to go get COVID tested right after I interviewed Rudy Giuliani because Rudy Giuliani, it turned out like two days later had COVID. And I was like, oh my God, if I got COVID from Rudy Giuliani, I I, like, that would just be insane. But whatever the case, Tommy Tuberville says this and we put it out and it becomes a huge news story. It's everywhere. And a couple of days later, I asked David Perdue the same thing. And even though he was technically actually not in a position to challenge the Electoral College, because the way his term ended, he was like, yeah, of course. Yes, ma'am, I am. And so I put out both of those stories. I'm sitting in my rental in Atlanta, like cutting videos. All of a sudden, everything goes bonkers. My phone's ringing off the hook. My Twitter's exploding. I'm getting emails and I'm just like, what is going on? And it's, oh my God, Trump has tweeted both of your stories. And it wasn't just, oh, he retweeted and then retweeted. I guess he like retweeted the Tupperville thing and then put a message on the David Perdue one and said, That's because David is a a good patriot. Thanks, Lauren, for all your hard work.
1: Oh, so he wasn't in on it. Like he didn't get that you were exposing them. He was like, this is great.
0: I mean, what it did was it drove a wedge because Trump seizes on that to up the pressure on everyone in Georgia. They can't talk about the COVID response. They can't talk about the economy. All they can talk about is... Donald Trump wanting to overturn the election, which was clearly very popular with Georgia voters. And that's the, for me, my work is about making sure I'm breaking news that has the ability to change a media narrative. I'm not going and trying to entrap my ideological opponents in harebrained illegal schemes within an organization and then trying to tie it to political figures to take down. its There's enough news out there to report and expose that you don't have to like concoct false narratives.
1: What was your reaction when you saw the James O'Keefe announcement and the rather Bizarre video he put out about him being pushed out. He claims he jumped. Clearly he was pushed out of Project Veritas.
0: Obviously it was elated. I think that it's fantastic that he's been booted from his own organization. It, I got calls from lots of people, emails with congratulations. It's been a, a long road. We, the time that we spent seemed like an eternity in that month that from Finding out that we've been infiltrated to the actual date of the election, he had been saying that he was going to drop a new video every day. It became psychological warfare. It described it that way as psychological rape, because we all know that he's been in the office. We've been in had different interactions with this woman over the course of a couple weeks, at least. And what did you say? What could you have said that could be cut the wrong way? And so oh, everyone's yeah. on pins and needles. We're getting death threats at the office. We had to call the Capitol Police. But one of our partners at the time is the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. Bob is married to a congresswoman. And I remember picking up the phone and getting death threats for Bob. It's really creepy. You don't know what's going to happen. Physically, oh, well. It's all bluffing. Yeah, I let that kind of stuff roll off my back for the most part because it is mostly bluffing. But you never know. You had. Things like Comet Pizza with people showing up with a gun to a pizza parlor. Somebody could show up at our office and try to shoot me or Bob. And it's not like constant stream of death threats, but it's definitely happened. You definitely get nasty emails, nasty phone calls. But that time period really drove into me an undying desire to see that his organization be shattered. And the news felt pretty damn good. I saw it and it was like, that's right, karma.
1: Karma. Yeah, payback is a bitch. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. One of the things you've done that we haven't talked about is you didn't just have the lawsuit. You yourself launched a project to help make other progressive, liberal advocacy organizations aware of the efforts, and the members of Project Veritas, so that they could protect themselves. And you also, obviously, as you just outlined, continued your own undercover work. I guess the first question is, am I undermining your efforts by giving you more publicity now? Is it going to be harder in the future for you to go undercover the more we splash your name and face around? Or are you already well enough exposed in, in this realm that... People should be on the lookout anyway.
0: I had a profile in the New York Times and people would ask after that and after a profile in Rachel Maddow, oh, can you do this stuff anymore? And I continued to do undercover reporting last year and got quite a few scoops out of it. Does it make it harder? Sure, but at the end of the day, even when you're caught, there's a lot of interesting situations that can come of that. And one good example, I actually was called by name out from the stage at a Republican, it was out of Gamey County Republican dinner in Wisconsin. I wasn't even really there to try to talk to the gubernatorial candidate. My beat has been exposing election deniers because I honestly truly believe that we still are facing a huge threat of the destruction of democracy by these extremist right-wingers. The guy my my main person, my main subject there was the guy who's leading the audit in Wisconsin. He's a former Supreme Court justice named Mike Michael Gableman. And anyway, he and I had a confrontation. Basically, they I think they were gonna thought the the radio host thought he was gonna shame me out of the room. And I sat there and I just took it. And they kept mocking me from the stage. And eventually I'm like, well, I'm here to ask questions. So I might as well ask questions. So Gableman comes off stage. I, They think it's funny. They're like, oh, come up on stage. At first it was stand up. And I was like, okay. And I'm standing up to ask my question. And he's like, no, no, come on stage. Come on stage. I was like, are you sure? I was like, no, I'm not coming on stage. No, come on stage. So I, they beg me to do it. I get up there. I ask Gableman the question. And then he comes up on stage and he's, you can go back to your seat now. And I was like, no, actually you invited me up here. I would like to stay. They couldn't really say anything. And then managed to get some great news out of Gableman because he advocated for like a bloody revolution on the stage. But Just being able to like stick it out, even though it was no longer undercover, people will still say incredible things when they know that they're talking to someone who's their opponent.
1: So who's the most interesting person you've met in the course of doing this?
0: So Matt, I've had a number of people reach out to me, famous like journalists, celebrities, whatever. But I think the most interesting, it would have to be Kathy Griffin. I've been a fan of hers for a long time. And it was after the Rachel Maddow segment on my John Eastman story. And she tweets out the segment and says something to the effect of, this is how you get your work on the A block of Rachel Maddow. Everyone should give Lauren Windsor a follow. And I was just like, oh, holy shit. I can't believe this is happening. And so I write her back. I respond. I'm like, thank you, Kathy. That's great. I've been a fan for a long time. Thank you so much. And she writes back. She's the girl. Anytime. If you, I don't know how you're going to continue to do this, but I've got wigs. If you want to come raid my closet. And so I, it was funny because just like a week or two weeks before that, I'd been researching wigs and the universe is bringing me wigs. And so I respond and I was like offline. And I said, Hey, I totally get it if you're not serious, but if you are, I live in Los Angeles part-time and I'm here and I would take you up on that offer. And she's awesome girl. Come on over, come get these wigs. So I go to Kathy Griffin's house. And she has two wigs that are ready for me. And I'm thinking I'm just going to come pick up the wigs and probably not be there very long. And she wants to have a conversation for an hour and a half. So really it was more of, hey, I've got these wigs and they're great. You should be able to use them. And also talk to me about your political adventures.
1: Did you use them?
0: I did. I've used both of them, but one of them is somewhat nicer than the other. It's all natural hair and it's like lighter, a lighter color than the other one. And I went to get it rehabbed. I have a a cousin who's a a hairstylist. And so he does the wig really great. It's super cute. And I know exactly where I want to debut it. And it's this Herschel Walker fundraiser at Mar-a-Lago. And to me, I'm saying like, Kathy Griffin got canceled like the ultimate cancellation because of her portrait of Donald Trump and I could wear Kathy Griffin's wig into Mar-a-Lago how amazing would that be and I got into I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to get into the Herschel fundraiser but walked in the front door wearing Kathy's wig and we never got to talk to Trump because he wasn't out talking to the lower level attendees. But it was a pretty amazing experience to be able to go listen to Trump at Moro Lago while wearing her wig.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Did they give you a confidential, or classified government document on the way out as a souvenir?
0: Yes. When you, that came it wrapped up in the goodie bags.
1: Was there a moment Where you're undercover, you're talking to someone and they say something and you're like, wow, this, even you as, as jaded as you may have become at this point, as inured as you might've become to all the insanity on the right. Was there something that really took you by surprise?
0: I think the John Eastman story, which I think most people really know me for is John Eastman. It was shocking because I... For whatever reason, I probably should have expected the answer that he was giving, but I thought he would have more shame. I really did. And given that he was running away from it, like just the week prior to us talking to him, he had given a, an interview to National Review where he was backing away saying, oh, that was just a thing I wrote. It Nobody took it seriously. It was just something that I had to put together for, for the president and so then when my colleague and I approached him and it was like, Mr. Eastman, we're such huge fans. We were at the Capitol on January 6th and your legal reason was totally solid. Why didn't the vice president listen to you? And he was like, you're right. <laughs> it was totally <laughs> solid. And it's because Mike Pence is an establishment guy. And he talked to us for almost 10 minutes and would have talked to us for longer, but for there was a friend of his waiting beside us but my mind, as he starts talking about Antifa being behind January 6th and CNN being behind January 6th, like all of these different things, I'm just like, this guy is Looney Tunes. And he's all, they're all spineless cowards. We were on a phone call with 300 state legislators and they're all cowards. And I'm just like, wow, yeah. this is going to be insane. I knew as soon as we walked away and I'm just praying the entire time. I'm like, please you know, that we have the audio from this, because if the audio is not good, we're not going to have the story, but immediately checked it and knew we both knew this is going to land in a massive way. And it did. He's facing disbarment in the state of California. And I hope he is disbarred.
1: All right. I've got one final question. I'll get you out of here. Are you, or is anyone in your life as talented a dancer as James O'Keefe?
0: <laughs> I will give it to James. He's a very talented dancer. I think is a terrible person, but he is a talented dancer.
1: From here to dancing with the stars to even greater irrelevance, we can only hope. We can only hope. Lauren Windsor, thank you so much. I think this giant James O'Keefe story is proof that the arc of the moral universe is long. It does bend toward exposure and justice. And thank you for the role you have played in bending that arc along the way.
0: Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it.